right. Happy Thursday. It's th- uh, Blur's Day, whatever. It's it's Thursday, and we are back again with another episode of Learning Tech Talks, where we are exploring the landscape of learning technology. This is a little bit of a a little bit of a sidebar from learning technology, but we are still ta- talking about technology um, and disabling it. Oh, hang on here. I got to disable that. There we go. All right, so we're exploring learning technology while, oh, whatever, we'll, we'll get into it. The intro is, is shot, but I'm talking with Elizabeth Cook and she is from Digni. And we're gonna be talking about what might be a bit of an emotionally charged topic, but I think it's a very important one. And uh, so we're talking about combating racism and how technology is playing an important role in that. But before we do, Let's get the conversation going, and I'm going to try and encourage everybody to participate because I want this to be a, a dialogue between Elizabeth and I, but also very inclusive of everybody on here. So let's do that with a little bit of lighthearted stuff. So let's start with where are you in the world today? So if you can comment in and share that, that'd be great. Elizabeth, let me know, where are you today? Uh, I'm in Vancouver, hiding in a spare room from my family. Hiding in a spare room. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. And mm-hmm. You know what? If anybody bops in, don't worry about it. We won't even mm-hmm. you don't have to do the CNBC or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. try and like quiet. Yeah, they'll be just as surprised as you are. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, so I'm in I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, like I always am. Western suburbs here It is a glorious 50 degree Fahrenheit or three degree or seven degree, something like that. So it's warming up here. So let's transition to the next one, which is, all right, Elizabeth, I'm curious to hear this one. So as you reflect back on your high school years, Mm -hmm. what crowd would you have been associated with? Uh, Well, I'm only going to count the last three years of high school because that's when I lived in Vancouver. And I think I wasn't out as being gay then. In fact, I wasn't aware that I was gay then. Although when I talked to people that I went to high school with, they said like, duh, obviously you were gay. But so I didn't hang out uh, with other gay kids, at least not that I knew of, but I did hang out with a lot of sporty kids. I played soccer and I uh, used to race for snowboarding for my high school. Because uh, I grew up on the North Shore, so we had a ski and snowboard team. That was a thing um, in high school. You could be like in a snowboard club. Yeah, the ski and snowboard team. We used to go get to go on trips. Okay, that uh, to go really compete. Cool. I had it in rural Minnesota. All right. Yeah, Canada. We're killing it up here in the in the Pacific <laughs> Northwest. Um, I did that, and then I kind of hung out with like like kind of the grunge kids. I really liked grunge, so there was like a lot of plaid okay. Um, okay. happening as well. But I'm still friends with a lot of people from high school. Um, Pretty much the girls that became like the popular girls uh, that I chatted with a bit in high school, but I'm really friends with now. And okay. now I'm not really sure why they were that popular because they seem pretty boring. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but so it sounds like you floated in between different groups because you, you had the athletic teams, there was the grunge side. Yeah. All right. Any, any I, I mean, fashion habits that came along with that? Uh, none that I was a part of, um, okay. but I certainly. Uh, yeah, I, I liked the plaid quite a bit, and like, like, like yeah, band T-shirt. I mean, think, I feel like I'm kind of wearing plaid now, which I should have thought about before I brought that up as an example. I liked band T-shirts a lot. I had like a lot of Nirvana T-shirts. Uh, okay. All uh, right, like Cla- classic band T-shirt. Yeah, yeah, liking all the like Pearl Jam and Nine Inch Nails <laughs> and all that stuff that makes people now realize that I'm in my 40s because I graduated high school in the 90s. <laughs> Got it. Well, we were, yeah, here here we started with just, you know, what was the mm-hmm. click that you necessarily ran with? And, and yeah. then it's told us so much more about mm-hmm. who Elizabeth Cook is. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So for mine, I actually, 
similar to you, I, I kind of floated. I didn't really fit in. I didn't really fit in with any specific group. And mm-hmm. I always found myself just kind of gravitating towards who are people that I think are fun and interesting to hang out with. And I didn't yeah. really ever, you know, I didn't, I played some sports, but I wasn't really in the jock crowd. I had friends who were like the farmers and things like that, but I wasn't, I didn't live on a farm. So I, I just kind of like ended up floating into the different groups. I didn't really hang with any specific group. I guess yeah. my whole life I've kind of just done what made sense. Yeah. <laughs> really did you, did you grow up in Wisconsin? I didn't. I grew up in the sticks of Minnesota in a tiny okay. little town out in southwestern Minnesota. Yeah. So not too far from here. Yeah. Okay. I only know how to do that accent because of Fargo. Oh, uh, Minnesota. Yeah, Minnesota. Yeah, there's a lot of really good memes and stuff going around about uh, yes. uh, Minnesota and Minnesotans talking about like it not being cold outside when it looks freezing outside. So, <laughs> yes. And I think having come further south, I say further south to Wisconsin. <laughs> you know, I think the accent has faded. I used to, I used to, if I traveled outside of the States, people would always say, say boat, say yeah. boat. I'd be like, what boat? And <laughs> I didn't hear it, but anyway. Yeah. So let's transition. Let's transition over to the topic at hand Mm -hmm. uh, to learn a little bit more about what you're doing with Digni and how this works. But before we get into it, a little bit of backstory into who Elizabeth is and Mm -hmm. and how you ended up here. You know, in your high school days and your Nirvana t-shirts as you're hanging out on the slopes, did you think to yourself, you know what I'm going to be? I'm going to be a tech CEO of a company focused on on combating racism is that was that was that a dream as as a child no i mean i think i and my parents would certainly attest to the fact that i definitely wanted to be in charge um but i uh i, I this isn't really what i saw myself doing i yeah. i started out working um with with children uh and teenagers i have a um, undergraduate degree in human and social development um, and worked as a counselor for a long time worked with all sorts of different kids particularly kids with mental health issues uh, and kids that were, um, and the different programs for kids that were that identified as trans, um, as transgender. And I did that for a long time. And then I, I needed to change. It was, um, uh, I, I didn't want to hear stories about people hurting children anymore. Uh, and, and sort of the negative things that had happened to kids. I was too familiar with that. And it, that bothered me. Okay. Um, and I wanted to sort of challenge myself a little bit more. So I, um, I went and got a Juris Doctor of Law and I thought I would practice law. Um, and then I realized that practicing law full-time in a firm would have been um, really hard on my wife. It would have been a little bit of a, well, I'm going to go to work and I'll see you, you know, after I've done my 80 hours a week uh, work. So that wasn't super appealing um, uh, for our family. Um, So I looked for some other things to do. And this was sort of about uh, like maybe 12 years ago. I wanted to kind of combine both passions. I was really passionate about working with communities and you know finding ways to create some sustainable change and helping the lives of, uh, you know, of all sorts of different people, but particularly people that were marginalized. And I wanted to use all of the skills that I developed in law school around you know thinking critically, around looking at creating systemic change and good governance and being really research based in everything that I was doing. So I started consulting and uh, I started my own consulting company in uh, in doing diversity and inclusion and really helping people doing a lot of education and training, you know, all the unconscious bias stuff, women in the workplace, all those kind of things. And then doing a lot of policy analysis and advice and working on, you know, some strategic plans. And the more I did that, the more I realized that there was another piece missing. um, And it was that people didn't have the data. People would come to me and say, 
well, we just had this person come out at work and it's, you know, caused a bit of a problem. So I think we need to do some training because nobody understands what it means to be trans or we're having a really hard time hiring indigenous people. Um, we want to increase our, you know, the representation that we have of black people in our, in our, uh, uh, in our workforce, but we're struggling with how to do that. Um, and it was all anecdotal. It was all, you know, one thing would happen and people would have a reaction and Very try to find it work. Yeah, and that, and that wasn't, I mean, that was great that those issues were being brought to the forefront, that people had a voice to be able to complain and then try to find a solution. But from a strategic standpoint and actually being, being able to create some meaningful change, and what we're really talking about is improving the, the culture in a particular workplace, yeah. um, that wasn't happening. And it, it wasn't happening in a way that was, um, scalable for those organizations, and that made sense for me. I didn't have enough hours in the day to do that kind of work with every uh, with every kind of company. It wasn't something that that was actually going to get um, fixed. Um, and I met um, uh, a serial entrepreneur, uh, uh, Adrian Jonklis, who um, he's actually one of the most beautiful people, uh, and we work incredibly well together. Uh, which is surprising because we have completely different backgrounds. Like he has an MBA, full science degree. Like he understands blockchain in a way that I don't understand blockchain. Like he knows all of like the oh we need to code this or do this. You know, like he probably looks at me and wonders why I'm allowed to even have a, like a, a a tablet or like a, a phone. Just like, like I don't know. She does obviously doesn't know how to use this. I don't know why we even let her have it. <laughs> but he um. He had he had thought about this a similar kind of thing. He was a you know he's just become a Canadian citizen uh, last year, and he really wanted to do um, put some time and work into helping to create a more uh, diverse and and really inclusive uh, world. And you know uh, had had some ideas about how to do that. So we met a few years ago and formed uh, Digni. So what we did was we created the software. So he had sort of the technical side, and I had the, okay. what the product needs to do. And we created um, created our software that helps us to um, to measure diversity in different organizations. So we follow all metrics of diversity, and we look at because um, we like to benchmark our data. We use you know like the what what's captured in the in the Canadian uh, census data, and then the same kind of stuff in the in the states around um, data that's reported out, um, and measure all metrics of diversity. So. Um, Gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, um, religion, race. Uh, we do a lot around accessibility issues, so around physical uh, accessibility issues, and then um, mental health as well, because sometimes those are the invisible ones that we don't pay enough attention to. Yeah. Um, so we capture all of those, and then we measure for employee engagement, because it's it's kind of one thing to know who works there, but you want to know what their experience is, and you taking the pulse of an organization and just measuring everybody doesn't let you know how all of those different groups of people in your organization feel. So we created the software to be able to do that, that has a really interactive dashboard um, so that you can actually kind of play with those numbers and pull up intersectionality. So you can okay. see, you know, do you have young gay Asian men there and what's their experience like at work? Okay. Got it. Well, and we're going to dig into this because I think this is, this is the part, one of the things you hit on that I think is such a, exciting and important part about what you're talking about is that data the data side of this because mm -hmm. to your point this this is it's an emotionally charged thing i think there's a lot of people out there trying to do something about it but like you said it's often a very reactionary mm -hmm. short-term band-aid type fix of okay something happened we need to do something so let's do something and then whether it worked whether it continues on whether we actually address the core issue of it we don't really know we don't really know what that is and i think the other thing you you brought up that i think is really important is how you're capturing 
all facets of diversity versus just kind of looking at one. And I think sometimes that's where I've seen things start to go is we, we start looking at it in silos versus, hey, we need to look holistically mm -hmm. across the spectrum of what that actually means. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah, that, that that's right. And I mean, when we, you know, it's, it's such a understanding, you know, racism and our, and our hesitancy towards actually recognizing that we are all really diverse and that we work better when we're being inclusive. Um, we, what we really need to, to, to sort of keep in mind is that our research shows us uh, and research for like years, there's years of research that establishes that using data is one of the best ways to start to combat some of those biases because it keeps us accountable. It actually shows us in numbers what's happening so we can track it. We track everything else with numbers. You would never say to somebody like, well, how is, how, how's the sales department doing? You know, you wouldn't be like, the sales department, you guys are doing well, right? And they would be like, you know what? I feel really good about it. And I feel talk good. To a couple of people and, yeah, we, we've done well. Sure we I, I feel good. You know, pat me on the back. We took that off. You would even even dream of doing no. that. You're like, I don't care how you feel about it. Like, show no, me what is happening. Thing. How's marketing going? Oh, I don't know. I, I think people like our product. Yeah. It's not been an issue in our organization so far, so I'm sure it's fine. Like, no, that's not how it works. Okay. Okay. Well, so I'm curious because as we look at, and I think, and we, and I said this a little bit before we went live, that 2020 was was probably one of a, a big year for greater awareness of what's going on and kind of the greater needs. I think there's been a lot to humanize the workforce, which has been a positive mm -hmm. trend in really looking at people holistically. I think some good things have come out of it, but I think the risk is, is now we move into 2021 and beyond and, and many organizations are faced with this dilemma that I would say isn't unique to this, where it's like, now you know, mm -hmm. now you know this is a thing. So not doing something at this point is there is no, you know, plausible deniability of why well, I, ju I just had no idea type of thing. It's like, well, you know now. So, so what are yeah. you going to do with that? So, I'm curious how you've seen this evolve and advance over the last 18 months. Yeah. The events of last year and then, and then moving forward. Yeah. I mean, I, I, what I, what I observed was we moved from looking at, uh, of having progressive messaging be enough for companies. It was enough to sponsor the Pride Parade was enough to tweet about Black History Month um, and, and doing those kinds of things where now there's a real demand for progressive action where it's not just enough to do, you know, from the term it's used as, you know, virtue signaling. Um, it, it's not just enough to do that. Um, we need to take some action to move forward because there's a lot of different things that that are going on. You know, like sometimes there's individual instances, um, uh, you know, of, of, of racism. Um, but then there's also systemic issues um, that we need to be able to address as well, right? Um, and and that requires a little bit more attention. And I think, you know, what ended ended up happening, which you know really started a year um, a year ago, almost to the day um, in, in in the murder of George Floyd, is that um, you know we have smartphones that that make it so that everybody can see uh, racism and horrible things and traumatic things happening to particular members of our community, and that's really hard to watch. Um, and everyone, I, I think, it, you know, it, it, it dominated the headlines for quite a while, and it was really hard for a lot of people to watch. And then for some people, it, it, it remained a daily, um, a daily issue for them. And for others, you know, the, the, the momentum has kind of slid a little bit. And, and what we need to do in those moments is to figure out, um, much like you said, is what can we actually do to, to fix that? And, and I think there's a couple of different things that we can do. Um, but one of them is, is, uh, 
is looking at, uh, you know, addressing racism and, and, and issues of, you know, anti-diverse and really anti, uh, anti-inclusive attitudes in a really holistic way that, uh, that gives us a big strategy that not only creates some change, but creates some accountability because that's the piece that's, that's missing. Yeah. Well, and your point about the smartphones is one of those, you know, I think as more, it's opened up dialogue in some ways, in, in a good way. Mm-hmm. At times it's given us tremendous visibility into, like you said, things that maybe we just didn't want to look at or, you know, just wanted to pretend mm-hmm. didn't happen. And I think that's forced us to say, okay, well, now this, we, we, we can't really say, well, no, that's not here. That's not really mm-hmm. something that goes on. And now, so as, as you're talking about what you did with Digni on that, then this is almost giving a organization, a true heat map in some regards of here's what's going on into your, in your company in terms of, cause it, from the sounds of it, not only are you saying, Hey, here are the people and the kind of different lenses of diversity. So we get a mm-hmm. blueprint instead of just saying, Oh, you know, uh, Elizabeth is a lesbian. I think you, mm. that's that's one universal viewpoint, but it's like there's other components of that that make up Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that so it's giving you that visibility into the holistic view of the workforce, so that you can see where that is, so that you can do something about it. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, and you know, one of the things that the data really does is challenge you know what it is that we think is going on um, in a workplace. So it's it. it there's two things that you want to look at when you start looking at those at those numbers right away. One is it shows you who works there. It also shows you who doesn't. So there might be some really big gaps. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of uh, you know, a number of clients that look at um, and, and are really interested in increasing the number of Indigenous people in their workforce. Okay. Um, and they realize that the Indigenous people that they had working there, um, that they were they were counting in their minds as working there. They weren't in full-time meaningful employment. They were either in some part-time jobs or working in contract positions that were just, you know, they were fixed term, but they were rolling contracts rather than having the benefits of being a full-time employee. So when you look at the data, you can see those kind of things. You can see who are the people that you have in those roles um, and do they have, you know, any opportunity in your organization outside of that. There's so much research that's been done around, and and frankly, just, just the financial case for, losing um, some of the knowledge uh, and experience that you have in those staff, right? If you're able yeah. to keep that and build on that, uh, you're really strengthening your organization. You know, it, it costs so much to hire new people and to train new people, um, both at the entry and, and you know, and, and at the, at the more uh, senior level. So when you can keep that in-house and build on that in-house, you're st- really strengthening the engagement that you have in your workforce and increasing the knowledge base that you have. Um, which I, you know, what company doesn't yeah. want to have that? Who doesn't want to save money and have everyone be really good at what they're doing? Well, and one of the things I'm curious, just because you're spending all this time and data on this, mm-hmm. and you know, one of the things that I think has, in some regards, made it difficult, or I think, in some of the conversations I have, people struggle with this because there's a lot of terms that get thrown around right now, right? And again, it's emotionally charged. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of terminology. And I feel like a lot of times people aren't really sure what to do with it. And some of the examples, but I'd love you to kind of elaborate on this. Mm-hmm. You'll hear systemic racism, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we need to address systemic racism, which can feel very, I don't really know what that is, or I don't know what that means. So it leaves yeah. you in this place of like, uh, add more, you know, diverse members to the board, I guess. Like, you know, mm-hmm. there, there's not necessarily always clear action 
on what to do about it, which leaves people feeling in a sense of helplessness. So I'm curious how this data is then, what are some things that come out of this that made people go, hey, we now know, but we can actually do something about it because we can see here's an action that we can take. Yeah, so a really good example is I've been, I've been working with a, um, another tech company um, and, and helping them um, <clears throat> to expand you know, diversity. And one of the things that they were felt was really challenging was they really wanted to hire more women and they wanted to hire more indigenous people because they recognized those as being two significant gaps in their workforce. So we would look at all of the data and we realized, you know, because and they were saying, like, you know, we put all these job ads out and we just we just don't get any like qualified candidates. Right. Because even when you're hiring for, diver you know, to try and attract more diverse candidates, we're not lowering the bar. We're just looking for someone to have, you know, an added quality. Right. So the, the level of clarification, because you'll see yeah. that where it's like, oh, well, that's what we're doing. It's like, no, yeah. it's not. I, I deal with that argument all the time. They think we're just, you know, letting unqualified people in because of women. I say, well, no, there's qualified people out there. We just need to figure out, you we know, how to, to find them. Want to work here. Yeah. So there's a few things that are going on in the in the tech sector, and there's been a couple of different responses for that. One is there's not as many women and indigenous folks going into those programs in school. Okay. That can be a systemic issue um, because there's some barriers. So there might be some, there's some cost barriers in going into those, uh, into those programs of being able to, you know, financially afford to go to school and continue living and other responsibilities that you have. That is a privilege that's not necessarily afforded to everybody. Sometimes that can be harder for indigenous folks. We've certainly seen that in, in, in some of the data that's available and, and harder for women to go in. And they didn't want to. There's in Canada, there was a bunch of research that was done around all the STEM programs. So around science, technology, engineering, yep. and math. And they did a bunch of research and realized that you know young girls weren't going into math and science um, because of decisions that they'd made about feeling like they belonged in those in those subjects in grades three and four. So they've done a ton of work in grades three and four to really push and encourage young girls to want to go into those areas. And then they've been doing that for a number of years. And then we're starting to see that change where we're seeing more more young women feeling as though they belong in those programs and then going into mining and engineering and technology uh, and, and that's sort of making a shift. So that's a systemic shift that needed to be made to adjust those programs. Another one that, I, that I've worked with with this company is, so with that company, you know, we were looking at- Before how, you go into it though, can, can, yeah? can I pause you there? Because I think one of the things that I really appreciated what you said about this, and I think you hit on this because the term that I'm starting to hear coming up, which I think really hits on something, is the sense of belonging. Mm. And I think that is such an important piece that you'll hear it taken out of context. We go, well, we're just trying to force people to be more over here or shove people into this category. And it's like, no, mm -hmm. that's not the goal. The goal is to say, we want to make it feel like you can belong here. So people aren't avoiding it because they mm -hmm. don't think you don't belong here, mm -hmm. stay out. Yeah, so you can see yourself in it. Right. Yeah, yeah, and that, that that's a big piece. And so that's that's sort of one of the, the bigger long-term strategy pieces. So this company, yeah. you know, can work with some of those programs and do more, you know, internships, co-op opportunities, those kinds of things. Another is actually looking at the job description and seeing if those skills are actually required. Do you actually need to have this particular degree or this particular qualification to, to be able to do that job well? Or can you rethink what it is that you're asking of people? You know, can you have, is that something, especially in tech, is it something that you can you can learn on the job? Yeah. And if it is, then you need to adjust, you know, how you're hiring for those positions, right? You can get people in at a more junior level, provide them with the training that they need to do that, to do that specific job really well in your organization, which 
in the tech world, like that can just take a few months of being right. able to, to, to learn something. Well, and I mean, the degree, the, the bachelor's degree alone, there's tons of research out there showing how mm. that just setting that as a baseline mm -hmm. can, can be massive in avoiding, can, can make it very difficult to create a more diverse workforce because like, well, that alone is a pretty, can be a pretty discriminatory thing. Going back to your point of not just saying, oh, that doesn't matter, but saying, does it really matter? Because yeah. I don't know any, I don't know a lot of people. I would know a lot of people who would say, that's not necessarily a great measure of whether somebody's going to be really successful in this type of role. It was just a nice, easy, well, this is an easy way to screen candidates without mm -hmm. necessarily thinking of the implications. Yeah. And a lot of the skills that you learn in that, like depending on what the job is, um, you know, you can you can skip some of the broad learning that you do yeah. in, in a bachelor's degree and and have it be more targeted. And we've seen that, you know, with the more technical, like tech, uh, we have like, you know, BCIT here, the BC Institute of Technology and there's other similar programs that are shorter courses. But, you know, some of that stuff you can do, you can do on the job or, you know, you can you can fit in other um, other more creative ways um, that can be just as helpful. So those are some of the ways that, you know, like that's one client looking at that as a systemic issue and ways to be involved in that. Right. Cause they would already take on interns. They would already take on co-op students. They already have relationships with some of those, um, institutions. And now they just need to, to, to look at some different ways to, to, to alter that. Right. Cause universities are interested in having candidates get jobs or like having their students go oh, and yeah. be able to get jobs because that makes you want to go to that school. Cause if you go to that school, you get a job. So we need there, there's um, there's some adjusting uh, um, that can be done there, um, okay. can be done there as well. So that's sort of a a bigger well, picture. On that one, a question that came up, and Boss <laughs> asked this question. So I'm curious, you know, as you've been working with organizations on this one, as they're looking at, I think the job, the job descriptions, I think is a really important one that a lot of times doesn't get the attention. It does I think in general people know like ah job descriptions aren't great. They don't always accurately, but I don't think people always realize when you scratch under the surface even. I've done some research on even the way you word job descriptions mm. matters. Like the words you choose and how you describe jobs can make a big difference to, again, creating that sense of belonging of, well, I read this. That is not me. Like I don't fit that mold yeah. type of thing. So I'm curious, as you work with organizations on, let's say, the job pieces, are they using this data to help them better target audiences or make it more open to people who they're looking to hire. So again, you don't run into that issue of, well, we have jobs, but nobody applies for them. So we just keep hiring the same category of people. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's something that we do is when we, <clears throat> when we look at these numbers, we, you know, we, we help them to figure out, you know, what are some of the areas that you need to address? And if that is around um, job descriptions, then, you know, you're looking at inclusive hiring practices and how you go about doing that. And that's, a, you know, a whole body of work that would be a whole project that we would engage in um, or we would refer, uh, you know, to, to someone else. And there's there's technology out there that helps you already to screen your job description. And it will show you the gendered language um, that's used as a company out of Seattle. Their name escapes me. Uh, they were going to get a gratuitous plug, but I can't remember what they're called. Um <laughs> I don't even know them, but uh, but I kind of feel bad about okay. it anyway. Uh, but it's a really great uh, gr great software tool, um, you know, to be able to to look at the gendered language because uh, that that happens with a lot of people as well. And bringing it back to Digni, as we should, um, is one of the things that we often do is work uh, to survey candidates. So of all the people that have applied for a job before they even get a job or if they're unsuccessful, we can um, survey them about what their process was like in getting a job. Where did they hear about the job? What, are they, well, you know, what was their experience like in the hiring process? To get a sense of what's going on there. And for, for really large employers that, you know, that are hiring, 
at, at really significant rates, that can be really valuable data because people tend not to want to give the, the, you know, certainly the company that they're working for um, or the company that they're trying to get a job um, with necessarily an accurate um, uh, picture of what their experience was like, but they do tend to do that with a third party. And we, we really pride ourselves on establishing that, that trust. You can hear from candidates along the way, whether they were successful or not of like, what was your experience? But I think the thing you hit on that I think is also interesting from a data point is where did you hear about this? Because that mm-hmm. can give you better sources into where are those communities, where are these individuals so that we can reach them versus the traditional chant. Well, we always go to like, this is our process. For- yeah people into the organization. Well, that process may be exclusive in and of itself. Yeah. Well, I, like I see this a lot with clients that are using LinkedIn to advertise for jobs. Like, well, I put it on LinkedIn, so I'm just going to, you know, we're going to share it with all of our networks and we're going to hope diverse groups come up. And it's like, how many diverse, like, do you think that you're meeting, like, really, is that getting to diverse people by just going through, like, your personal network? Do you think maybe there's some broader ways to go out and, you know, and do this? <laughs> All the people who are connected to yeah. you, you know, and have worked with over the past however many years. Yeah, you need to be a little bit more more broad. But And there are, you know, there's a number of different, you know, companies that, that you know, specifically do, you know, try to hire diverse and, and inclusive candidates. So, I mean, you need to find the one that fits you. I don't think, I'm really not a fan of the, the cookie cutter solution. You need to find something that works for you and your organization that's really efficient as well. Because if you're hiring particularly for large volumes of people, you need to be able to do that relatively quickly um, yeah. and, and do that really well, um, especially in the States, you know, of meeting all of your uh, your obligations under the EEO uh, requirements there as well. So there's, the, you have to find the way that that's right for you, but it does help to have uh, to have another lens. Yeah, well, and I think it. your point to, to kind of go back and, and reframe the flow of this, so I'm understanding, you know, for an organization that's looking at tackling this and saying, you know what, we want to move from from hashtags and, and banners to action. Mm-hmm. What you're doing with this is out, out of the gate, you're creating this basically data blueprint, which it follows a similar model to some of the tech I see that are doing this with skills. Right, mm-hmm. where let's actually get a blueprint of the skills of your workforce. You're doing a similar type heat map, but on the diversity spectrum and saying, let's get mm-hmm. a diversity heat map of what we have. And then from there, let's look at that and prioritize where the areas of focus. So so if that's a workflow process, if I'm if I'm nailing that right, because again, as you've described it, what I'm hearing the example of like the job descriptions, you may look mm-hmm. at this heat map and go, okay. Here's an area of, of opportunity for us. We think one area of opportunity to address this opportunity is in our hiring practices. Mm-hmm. Let's make that a priority and things like that. Is that a fair assessment of kind of the workflow organizations are going through? Yeah, I, I think that's one of them, you know, especially when you're looking at, at, at dramatically altering the diversity in your in your workforce in terms of representation then you want to look at hiring. There's also looking at at the culture in your workforce and the engagement that people have. A lot of the research um, and and frankly, what's the business case for diversity and inclusion that we've had for you know about 15 years now is identifying that when you have diverse groups of people that work well together, you get better results. Yes. You're more likely, you know, to have better financial results. But the biggest one that stood out, you know, for for my clients over the past years. When you have diverse people working really well together, they're more likely to be innovative and agile. You're getting different viewpoints. You're getting different ideas coming to the table to be able to problem solve in a more interesting way that's getting you better results. Yeah. Who doesn't want to have some, you know, a group of people that are more agile yeah. and innovative right now, right? That's that's essential. So figuring out how to get that, you know, maybe there's there's a piece that's missing. Maybe you have everybody that's, you know, working into one culture, right? They're all working well, you know, 
yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm gay or yeah, I'm black or yeah, I have this point of difference from, um, you know, what is the otherwise the majority in, in, in a workforce. Um, but I don't talk about, you know, my ideas necessarily because I don't feel safe or, you know, to be right. able to do so. How do, how do we create that? So how do you get an environment where the diverse people that you have there are really meaningfully engaged and are heard in a really safe way uh, in, um, at work to be able to benefit from that? Okay. So how have you, well, let me, there's, there's one area I want to go first and then let's, then let's shift gears into this one. But I'm curious, what types of things do you see organizations struggle with as they, as they jump into this, you know, as they start treading into this and maybe now this is a boardroom conversation or this is, it's made its way up to some decision makers to say, Hey, we actually, we actually need to do something about it. What, what types of resistances do you see or challenges do you see organizations face as they say, all right, well, it's rubber meets the road. Let's mm. do it. What are some of those hurdles that they run into? Yeah, I mean, people are afraid of getting in trouble. They don't want to be the ones that are, that, that are told they've done something, that I've done something wrong. Uh, and people are reluctant to change. I mean, generally, people are reluctant to change, right? Like I've been with my wife for like 15 years and, you know, I would prefer not to be told that I have to change the way I pack a dishwasher. Do you know what I mean? And that's like so basic. It shouldn't be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is like we're reluctant to change and we don't like to be criticized. So I think one, I think there's three reasons why people really come to the conversation about diversity and inclusion. Sometimes it's a, a legal requirement or obligation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's to take advantage of the business case for diversity and inclusion. And sometimes it's the moral sense of doing good. Um, you know, and wanting wanting to be a, a more positive uh, a positive change. So, what I try really hard to do is, when I see that reluctance and when I see that that fear of being in trouble, um, I work with a lot of boards that are all white men that don't want to be told they shouldn't be all white men. Um, and so I say, you know, we're not here to take jobs. We're here to create new jobs and to make the workplace a more meaningful place. Right? Nobody's getting fired because you're not you're not being um, diverse, right? We're, we're looking at new ways to do things. And that would, you know, fall under succession planning, um, or restructuring in a, in a more meaningful way. Um, but that's sort of what I see. And I, I always try to focus on um, the positives, because diversity and inclusion isn't about being punitive. It's about making things better for everybody. Everybody's going to do better if we're being more, in, more innovative and more agile. Everybody's going to do better if we're able to create better solutions that make more money for the company, right? And creating that environment, we all stand to gain. Often when I talk to, to groups about, you know, well, why should we want to be more diverse or why do we need to have different people around, around the table? If you go to a food court, you don't want to see 10 burger joints, like unless you're like really, really passionate about burgers, right? You want to say, I want to have a few options. I might not go to those Donald's, options. Hardee's, yeah, yeah, like every single. You know, you like you want to mix it up a little bit. You want to have some different options, and and food is often one of the the easiest ways to get into a new culture and okay. to you know recognize that we can have diversity. Those are good things to have, right? We can still all sit down. We still all eat meals, but they can come from different places, and we can do you know have have a little bit more variety that way, um, and we'll we'll do better, right? So with that, because I think it's one of the things you hit on there, and I think it's a really important piece is this fear factor creeps in. And when, when the fear factor creeps in, you will just see people paralyze. I mean, they will just paralyze when it's like, I feel like you're you're coming in to take what's mine. And, and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, we need to, how do you, how have you worked through that? I mean, you kind of scratched it a little bit, but I think it's a really important piece to address because this is I, fear has does weird things for people and mm -hmm. it can really paralyze progress in many regards to your point of, well, we don't want to admit that 
we actually did have these issues. We did have these issues and we haven't been doing a very good job. Heaven forbid people know that we made mistakes along the way and we be open about that so that we can say we we recognize it. It happened. Mm-hmm. We want to do something about it. How do you coach them past that? Because that can I can see that being a showstopper. Yeah, it, it really is. I usually um I work with those groups in private. So I would do uh I, I often personally do education and training with those groups in private so that they feel um safe and comfortable being able to ask really hard questions. Um because that's often what it is, is we, we just need to have some, some more, ch- more challenging conversations. Um, and, I, and I show them all the, all the reasoning and all the things that they can stand to gain. Uh, and I, and I, I focus a lot on personal stories. Um, you know, sometimes it can be really daunting when I say to you know, a group, well, this is like an all white board of old men, like you need to change it up. <laughs> when I talk about other examples of groups that have, have done that successfully um, and, and tell the stories of those people and explain like, so here's an example of a really qualified candidate that, you know, you didn't choose or or, or don't have the ability to choose right now. Um, this is what you've missed out on, and this is another organization that had, has gone through that change. So really showing them the personal side. My my experience is that most people, you know, you can tap into that empathy, um, and you can help them work through, uh, you know, work through their fear and help them to see themselves in a positive role in creating that change. Um, Cause that's what we need, right? Like it's, yeah. uh, you know, and, and then we, you know, we do this, you know, I, and I've always just do it, you know, with, with lesbians a bit like, Oh, well, you know, you really need to get yourselves out there to be a role model, you know, to change. And, you know, the, we'll have women's networks that are going to work to get, you know, women into positions of power. So it's like, well, actually that's not really my job, my work to do. Like that's everybody else's job. Like that's the ally. That's what, you know, allyship is. And, you know, stopping racism and stopping homophobia and transphobia isn't the responsibility of black people, gay people, and trans people. It's the people that are experiencing those things that, that need to have that change and then helping them to do that. And not, um, uh, you know, I work really hard at not trying to shame people because I don't think we change our behaviors very well with, uh, with shame. I think we do it, you know, with knowledge and, and with experience and with yeah. the opportunity to safely ask questions. So I try to do that. Um, Cause it's challenging, well, I right? Like that I can see that approach working very well and that it brings the defenses down because like you said you know attacking shaming things like that can it it creates a natural defense Mm -hmm. and that then you're protecting things like that versus like let's talk about this and i think that's why conversations like this are so important to be able to actually have dialogue about this Mm -hmm. and talk openly about it not in a to your point punitive way or you know an attacking way but say hey this is the reality of some of the things that are happening. This is how it's affecting things. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the benefits of addressing it. And this doesn't mean we're coming for yours. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. The tide goes up for everybody. So let's talk yeah. about how that works. Yeah. And we, we, we need that help, right? It's not, you know, yes. pushing, you know, white men out of the workforce isn't going to fix things for anybody. Like we all need to be able to work together. So seeing that you have a positive role in that um, is really important. And, and I will say that, you know, Racism in the workplace, like it's not down to like just men. Like there's plenty of other, you know, plenty of women and other folks yeah. that that have gotten um, on board with that. Um, you know, white men just happen to be on the flag for a lot of those issues, um, which is you know challenging in and of itself. Yeah. Well, but but again, and is it there for a reason? Yes. But to your point, mm-hmm. and I think this is what was interesting as as you know, you and I talked, and I got to learn more about dignity is the fact that. Yeah, it's it's about looking at that whole picture and saying, what do we do about this? Because mm-hmm. we need to create a truly diverse workforce to get the best out of everyone. Mm-hmm. And again, to raise the tide. But 
you know, how do, how do we actually do that? So one question that came up and unfortunately I can't see who because of the whatever LinkedIn okay. privacy settings, but you know, ideas just based on, and I think this is really appropriate to where we're talking right now is mm. you know, if you're in one of those groups where you don't have the sense of belonging, you know, where you feel kind of like a duck out of water going like I'm here, but it is an uncomfortable territory to be. Do you have do you have recommendations or things just based on your experience? Because obviously you're walking into boardrooms of all old white males going, hey, mm -hmm. guess what? This isn't mm -hmm. what's best for everybody. And it hasn't launched nuclear fallout. So yeah. you've got to have some tips and tricks over over the years that you've discovered to say, how do we engage in these dialogues? How do we have a productive yeah. conversation? Well, I mean, while we're you know hitting on old white men. Um, I get along with old white men really well. Um, I really like drinking whiskey and scotch. And that has just been an absolute gateway back when I could go and, you know, have a drink with people or go out for dinner with clients and board members and stuff. Um, that was, I mean, I obviously miss drinking in public um, because that was a really great thing. And that was a way that, you know, we could connect. I, I like that, um, that world. So I, I look for similarities um, and, and ways and ways to connect um, with people uh, personally. And, you know, I, I mean, I carry a lot of privilege. I have a ridiculous amount of education. I, you know, I'm a white person. Uh, I'm a lesbian too, but most of the people that I work with are, you know, a little bit, um, uh, sometimes they're a little bit surprised by that, which is a whole other topic <laughs> of conversation. Um, but I think what you need to do is find ways to connect with them. So I, I saw the question pop up around, you know, how do you connect with DNI with your peers in a, in a heavily like, you know, IT or technical dominated environment? I often use um, pop culture references. So I'll uh, reference TV or movies, um, which is nice because it's not me talking about my personal experience. It's about me talking about something I saw in a story on TV. So it's a little bit more comfortable to be critical or look at that in an analytical way. And we're starting to see uh, more uh, different faces and people represented on TV than we used to. And it's more than just, you know, we used to, used to be such a problem. Um, whenever you saw trans people on TV, they were like the victim of a crime. And that was the only thing that they were able uh, to be, both in fiction and in nonfiction. Now we're seeing that change where that's just a part, you know, that's just a part of who the character is, but it's not, it's not their purpose for being on the show. Uh, and we're seeing better representation, um, although arguably uh, not enough, and certainly not representative of our uh, of our population. Um, but seeing other other faces during the lockdown, um, my wife and I really enjoy like terrible, trashy reality TV. <laughs> like absolutely, like it's just like shameless twenty year olds behaving poorly, like on Love Island. Like I love it. And it used to always be like white people on reality TV show, but there's all sorts of other um, other programs now. Um, so I like being able to, to bring that up. I uh, uh, Someone told me recently about a new show called Bling Empire, which is kind of like Real Housewives, but for really rich Asian families in, um, in L.A. And it's riveting. And it's a whole other world that I didn't even know existed. And I'm embarrassed I didn't know it existed. But there's all these other new things that I can I can learn. Um, you know, I saw a reality show the other day, my wife and I just finished it about um, people that identified as bisexual or pansexual on like a dating reality show, which is something that I've been craving um, uh, for like probably longer than I care to admit. Um, but it was really interesting watching. So looking for those kind of things in the media points of connection. and those stories, yeah, is, is nice because then you have other faces to use as examples rather than having to pull on you know, a, a hypothetical that's really just pulled on some of your own personal experiences or, or on something else. You know, one of the things that I, I, you you talked about there, and I think 
like you said, it's it's finding that point of connection. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that, that even people who are wildly different than yourself, if you really have a genuine curiosity of them and figure out like what makes you tick, like what you can find a point of connection. No matter, I mean, you can find a point of connection and leaning into that and saying, let's let's build on that. To your point of you brought this in, you this has kind of been the theme throughout is focusing on those points of connections and the positive sides of things builds the relationship to start stepping into the the tougher, you know, more difficult conversations mm -hmm. where you're not just coming in hot right out of the gate yeah. going, whoa, like I don't even know who you are and you're you're on edge with me versus, hey, like let's see what we have. Let's build on that. Let's get to know each other. Let's find where those mutual mm -hmm. points of connection are that we can expand on. Mm -hmm. And that's where when you're able to have that connection with someone, then you can talk about like, well, if we're going to talk about data, let's let's talk about, you know, the rates of incarceration for folks. Let's talk about like the systemic challenges that we have around laws that incarcerate and, you know, BIPOC uh, communities at a, at, a, at, a, at a much higher rate. You can talk about those things and start to see, you know, some of the some of the shifts and challenges. You can see how. Um, you know, women have been excluded from the workforce um, for a variety of different reasons. And when I talk to people about that, you know, I often say, we want to have women in the workforce and we want to have women in roles and they do need to be able to care and love for their children. But the system that we have set up now excludes men. You know, it makes it so that men aren't able to spend as much time with their children and they miss out on a lot of those elements of fatherhood, of being able to, you know, attend doctor's appointments and go to school. So the system that we've set up, while we often talk about it as excluding women, it's also taken a lot away from men. And if we can get everybody to the table, there's some interesting ways that we might be able to shift the way that we work um, to be able to, you know, let everybody um, do a little bit more of everything, right? To be that much yeah. more flexible. If we had a workplace that was more flexible, you know, for, you know, men that are parents, um, that would make a lot of changes as well because it's done a real disservice um, to men. Well, and it's reframing the dialogue. I think that's one of the things you're hitting on right there that, with that topic specifically, but I think you could apply it more mm -hmm. broadly, which is, yes, you could look at it as it's it's this way or it's exclusive to women or you could say hey you know what it's also exclusive because look what you're missing out on because mm -hmm. we aren't addressing this and now you've got that point again the mutual point of connection saying this mm -hmm. is about us versus them this is about yeah. how we grow together yeah and the way that you know our workforce was set up was that you had to be away from your children and your family so that you could work so you could achieve those milestones and get those promotions and look at how you know you can financially take care of your family what if that system was a little bit different? What if you'd had a little bit more flexibility in there? Um, you know, you would have gotten a lot more. You still would have, I'm not saying, you know, give up your career, don't, you know, don't be thirsty, you know, for the things no. that you want to do. Um, but, you know, if we just look at doing them a little bit differently, um, we can get there. Yeah. Well, and, and just as a personal example, I remember early in my career being told, you're going to have to choose between being successful and raising mm -hmm. a family. And mm -hmm. Refusing to accept that status quo of, well, that's just how it is. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's not true, actually. Mm -hmm. And you can change that. And you're actually better in both worlds. You don't mm -hmm. have to lose one or the other. And I think that is a, that's a dramatic shift that yeah. I think sometimes is, we have to fight against that because that is that tendency that we've been built on. It's like, well, taking from one means you have to give up something else. And it's like, mm -hmm. maybe not. Yeah. 
Yeah, and a lot of people think, you know, if you want to be more diverse and inclusive and have all sorts of different faces in your company, then you're going to miss out on, you know, productivity because you won't be hiring the best candidates. And it's just not the case, um, yeah. you know, and, and we don't see that. We certainly don't see that around, um, you know, efficiency and staff retention uh, data that we have. You know, we, we can see that, you know, you, you have harder working uh, and better staff when you have an inclusive environment. People want to be there and they like the company and they're working hard for that. Yeah. Who, who doesn't well, want to have those folks working for them? It seems so simple. It seems so simple and logical, but it's it, it oftentimes just gets missed that when you really think about it, happy employees, employees that are engaged perform mm -hmm. better. Yeah. I mean, it's just even just your own personal experience. How well do you do when you're miserable, you feel excluded, you feel like you can't stand what you're doing and, and you're mm -hmm. on the outs? Like, like yeah. You're not bringing the best of you to work. No, so I go into the other room and watch reality TV. The enterprise. Mm -hmm. So on that one, Howard has a question uh, that I think is a is a good one. Just in some of the things that you've you've worked on with this is, you know, so it's one thing to talk about this from an agility innovation from you know you, you kind of gave the three framing of where sometimes these things come from. It's reactionary or legal. It's required. We have to do something. Mm -hmm. It's a hey, we are seeing you know, the, the possibility of the, the positive outcomes or, or the other side, just morally and ethically, we need to do this. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, come down to brass tacks and organizations, you hit rubber meets the road and you go, hey, we're going to need to do something here. You're asking in some regards for them to take a little bit of a leap of faith because you're saying, I get, you can't, you may not even see it. You may conceptually kind of see it, mm -hmm. but you're going to have to trust me on this. Mm -hmm. How do you augment or balance that to say, but just to give you a little bit more comfort, let me help you see, show you how we're going to prove this business case out that this isn't just a, a, a good feels type initiative. Yes, yeah. it's that, and it's going to have a positive impact. Yeah. I mean, there's literally 15 years worth of business cases. So you can go to uh, catalyst.org that will show you a lot of that research. The McKinsey, uh, is it McKinsey or McKinsey? Um, McKin yeah, McKinsey Company has done a lot of work with with the Lean In uh, organization at leanin.org, where they have done significant uh, research around um, uh, the, the, the positive impacts on business overall around diversity and inclusion. So it really, and often when I do this training and presentations, like I flash up those logos of all of the companies that do this. And when you start to look at Fortune 500 companies, like they're all trying to do, um, you know, some stuff in, in, in a certain way. So it's... Um, you know, it's as much as I would like it to just be me and my great ideas. Um, a lot of people have, have come before me um, to explain that. And then, you know, I also give the examples of <clears throat> you try different things all the time. You're trying different things in marketing. You're trying different things in sales. You're trying different things across business development more broadly. It, it really isn't a huge cost um, for you to, to try this. And when you engage with your workforce, it's usually what they want. It's usually what people want to have. And that's a really important piece that we, we haven't really talked about yet. But the relationship between employers and their employees, that can often be a really strained one. Um, and, and when employees can see that, you know, you might not be getting it right, but you're trying. And it's a value that the company has around trying to be more diverse. And they're going to try some different initiatives um, to, to get you get you there. Just that trying has been shown to make a real difference and to strengthen the, that relationship there and that level of engagement, right? We don't always have to be perfect, but when we're trying, um, you know, and, and, and we're seeing some success, uh, that does make a difference. Well, and just, and I've got a follow-up question to that, but I mean, again, just 
anecdotally, if you think about that, it's like just even thinking your own personal relationships. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you interact with someone, if you can see they genuinely care and are trying to do something, even if they're missing the mark, even if you're like, mm-hmm. I even think of my interactions with my wife where sometimes where you're like, ah, you know, it's not quite what I know, what, but I know what you're getting at and I know it comes from a good place. Mm-hmm. That, that builds a lot of bonds. And I think yeah. my follow-up question to that from Howard is, you know, are there some of these key metrics then that organizations who are saying, we're going to do this, let's do this. Is it specific to, all right, where are we applying this? Or are there some bigger, broader kind of business things that organizations look at to say, hey, wow, we're seeing, we're seeing, you know, engagement go up. We're seeing some of these other things. Are there big levers? Yeah. So, Measuring engagement um, broadly is is one of the ways to do that. Um, A lot of people, uh, they have different different measures and and, and metrics within engagement that they're looking at, and and we have our preferred ones uh, at Digni. Um, That's certainly one of them. Um, we do a lot of uh, follow-up surveying, so we do, you know, our, our engagement and our diversity surveying. But then, whenever you know, you figure out what that company is going to do, um, you know, whatever initiatives it is, um, then we measure we measure the success of those. And sometimes it depends what industry you're in. You know, there's different um, there's different regulation and requirements in in public versus private, and and with government organizations as well. So that's where it kind of steps out of that that cookie cutter piece. Um, and becomes a little bit more individual um, because it it can vary. It can also vary, you know, if you have a company that has a, a number of seasonal employees for okay. what what you're measuring um, when. But but broadly, um, engagement is a is 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 probably. Well, I have to imagine though, even the, so, the fact you're doing this blueprint, right? This diversity mm-hmm. blueprint, if you will, or heat map, whatever term mm-hmm. we want to call it. Because you now have data on this, going back to the question of, right, how are you measuring whether it's working? Well, because you're dealing in data versus kind mm-hmm. of gut feel and emotional thing, you can actually measure it because to your point, you can say, well, here's where we were. What were our objectives? Our objectives mm-hmm. were to increase engagement in this population or increase workforce diversity over mm-hmm. here or here. Mm-hmm. Well, you have the data on it so you can say, well, did we do that? Are we yeah. trending towards that or are we not? And if not, doesn't mean we sit and go, oh, well, didn't work. But we can say, well, what could we change or what could we try differently to see if we can continue moving it in the direction we want it to go? Yeah. And depending on the size of employer that we're working with, you know, we can do all of the the pre-hiring um, surveying as well to see if, you know, if, if any inclusive hiring practices where you wanted to get more diverse folks applying to the job, we can survey and measure for that. And then we can also do it at the other end to look at who's leaving and why they're leaving. Um, you know, doing those that those exit interview uh, and exit surveying pieces to see what's going on there is, uh, is, is really important too. And, you know, I mean, we're very targeted with, with what we, um, who we survey, uh, you know, if you want, if there's certain issues in, in certain, de, you know, departments or areas of a business, okay. we can, we can target those. We haven't really talked about the privacy piece, but I will say that we, you know, we comply with all um, privacy legislation um, in whatever jurisdiction it is that we're, that we're working with. And we never, yeah, that could probably be a whole nother episode. <laughs> it is. Uh, but if I, I never really get to do just a blanket statement on it with no follow-up questions, but we never, um, 
we never report on anything. Uh, everything is anonymized that the, that the company gets back from us. Uh, so you couldn't identify who it is that said that. Elizabeth is all these things based yeah. on her responses type thing. Okay. Yeah. Well, and then my, we'll see how many questions I can squeak in here in the last couple of minutes, but I okay. don't think we will because we're going to easily run out of time. But <laughs> I think one of the ones that I'm curious on, you know, which, you know, what are your recommendations for organizations in this sense is that I can, I can anticipate and have seen this over the years, just in my experience, that sometimes it can be a little bit of a bumpy start, which again, can contribute to that fear factor of what if we make a mistake or what if we don't do it right? And there is a strained relationship between employees and, and employers oftentimes. Mm -hmm. So there is this like, I don't want to be the first one to make a move because if we make a mistake, Mm -hmm. This is going to blow back in our face. Mm -hmm. How mm -hmm. do you work people through that, you know, and encourage them to say, Hey, you're, you're going to make mistakes, but you yeah. got to keep working through that. Usually being transparent is really, yeah. is really obvious. So when we start working with a company, um, you know, we say, well, we're going to work together for a year. You're going to do this. You need to communicate this, you know, to your staff team. And we have comms people that work with us and we work with their comms team to be able to roll out those, those information campaigns so that it's not, you know, we're not asking people to read books to learn all about, you know, why Digney's coming here, but they're, they're getting the gist of what it is that we're doing and what they can anticipate. Um, and that process of being transparent about what you're doing and why, uh, what they can anticipate and what the company, you know, is really looking to try to do. Um, the, the, the feedback that we get is that that's really encouraging and people do engage. You know, I have employees that will uh, from, you know, uh, other companies that will email me specific questions or they'll be really pleased that, you know, we're working with them. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll sort of open open that up in a safe way. And the fact that we come in, you know, and we anonymize everybody's data and we keep it really private is really helpful because employees don't always want to tell employers that, yeah. that harder information. The trust but level's if, not there. Yeah, and it, but it's stuff that employers need to know to be able to make those changes. So that's why we're, um, you know, we're, we can be very helpful in, the, in those situations. Okay. okay. No, and I, I, that's... That makes sense in terms of the, I mean, the transparency, I think, is one of the biggest things. I think that's, there is this hesitant, like, well, we just don't want to say anything because what if we, it's like, people will be more inclined to forgive if you tried genuinely from a good place mm -hmm. and made some missteps mm -hmm. and if you just didn't say anything and mm -hmm. then leave people in the void of wondering or yeah. whether you know things are mm -hmm. actually happening. Yeah. You never get something done by ignoring the problem, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. And that's, that that applies to just about mm -hmm. anything, just ignoring it and hoping mm -hmm. it just goes away and not yeah. saying anything about it doesn't usually go very well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Awesome. Well, I'm not going to ask another one because if I do, I already know we're <laughs> over and we could probably have several follow-up conversations. Mm -hmm. to this, but I really appreciate your time today, Elizabeth. This was really fun. And I think an important conversation for people to be having and thinking about as they're thinking about like, okay, we want to do something, we need to do something, but let's not just blindly throw spaghetti at the wall and take a guess if whether we're doing the right things or whether it's actually making an impact. Let's do it from a data-driven approach. And yeah. there's some hard work ahead, but it's worthwhile work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm. I, I, you're quite right. And I'm really uh, thankful to have had the chance to chat with you this morning, Christopher. And if anybody does want to continue the chat with me, they're welcome to get a hold of me on, uh, on LinkedIn or email me and, uh, and have that conversation too. I'd be happy to chat with them. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time. Mm -hmm. Thanks everybody for tuning in and uh, hope you got something out of it. Have a great rest of your week.